This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Um, this is the fourth out of six sessions, and prior to this, I've kind of felt sorry for the audience, because, except, except for the first session, because I'm used to giving my presentations uh, in a weekend series where I'm talking for like five hours on Friday night and Sabbath with a little break for potluck so that people can go to sleep in the final session. But, um, but I'm, used to, I'm used to having the same audience and not an audience that comes and goes, and I'm used to be able to build on, on topics and relate them to each other and you know, bring it to a conclusion. And with each time it's like, well, for those who went to more than one seminar, I don't want to give them too much review because they'll be bored, but then for people who are coming just now for this one time, how can I share what's really complex um, with them? For this particular one, this session, if it were a weekend seminar, this would be the sermon. And then I don't feel so sorry for you because this is self-contained. On the other hand, the sermon doesn't have any slides, and I've been my, my audience has been eating a rich diet of slides and data so far, so I guess I kind of feel sorry for you. But what I've been talking about is the... Um, I've been talking about the effect of sin on the physical planet and how this is destabilizing society and how as a result of that we are seeing the fulfillment of prophecy right before our eyes, right now. Not the complete fulfillment of prophecy, but we're, we're seeing the start of the fulfillment of prophecy, prophecy that Christ himself made in Matthew 24, and how important that is. I want to talk to you a little bit about that. I want to talk to you about what Christ told us to do, why he told us to do it, what happens if, if we don't. I want to talk to you about very important things. I want to talk to you about our responsibilities in these end times. But first, I want to talk to you about my great-grandmother. Now, my great-grandmother was not much taller than this podium. She was a little thing. And you wouldn't know that she was little. She didn't know she was little. She was a force of nature. Have you seen how sometimes that little four-pound dog is the one that dominates, like we were just talking, is the one that's, you know, comes after you, you know, you know. She was a force of nature. Uh, we called her little grandma because she was little. And, and my brothers and I, with the logic of four, five, six-year-olds, we had my great-grandmother and my grandmother were both widowers uh, or widows. They lived together, mother and daughter. And we just knew they were grandmas. We, it was, we were in our teens before we realized that they were related. But anyway, um, but, you know, there was big grandma because my grandmother was about five foot eleven. And my great-grandmother was a good foot shorter than that. But my great-grandmother, as I say, she was a force of nature. And she could control a room full of adults, kids, and dogs with one word. Hey! And you, whoa, whoa! Everybody freezes. What? is up with little grandma. You know, everybody, everybody is at risk until little grandma is happy again. Now, when I was growing up in Southern California, 
growing up in Loma Linda, my, uh, my grandmothers would come visit, and they would come visit regularly. Every, not every Christmas, but sometimes they would have Christmas up in Seattle, or actually Tacoma, Washington. And, and, and sometimes they would come before Christmas, sometimes they'd come for Halloween, but we always knew when it was time for the grandmas to come. Because my father would get a load of uh, eucalyptus wood. Now, eucalyptus wood is, for those of you who are not familiar with it, it's really heavy, it's really dense, it makes a really hot fire. And in Loma Linda, in December, you really, really don't need that fire. I mean, it's just not cold. Coming, I'm from Maine, it was 14 degrees below zero when I left there yesterday. It'll be colder than that tonight with this storm passing through. And that's cold. We burn six cords of wood a year to heat our house. But in Loma Linda, you don't need that wood. At least we kids didn't. My grandmother and great-grandmother wanted a fire going. They wanted it just unbearably warm in that house. So my dad would go out and get the wood, and we kids would have to stack it. And there was another thing that happened. My father's big red leather chair would come out of his study, and it would be put by the fireplace. And there'd be a table that went by that chair, so my great-grandmother's sewing bag would go there. There'd be another table that went in front of that chair right by the fireplace, so my, mother, my grandmother's little black-and-white television could go there. She would get all set up. When we saw those things happening, we knew that the time was near. And then my father would take off. And he'd get in the family car, station wagon at first, and later some other car. But anyway, he would, he would fly up to Washington. And each year, he tried to A, not get a ticket, and B, beat the time that he had the year before. He'd fly up there. I don't think he even took a bathroom break. Fly up there. Because on the way, he was in control of the schedule. On the way back, he was not. Because grandmother and great-grandmother weren't, we're going to stop now, my back hurts me. Some of you guys might know what I mean. But, um, so he, and when, when he got close, two hours away, he'd call, start the fire, get the house warm. And my great-grandmother would, would come into that warm house, She'd head right for that big leather chair. She'd settle in. She'd put her, her sewing bag down. She'd get all settled in, and she would hold court. She would dispense wisdom whether you wanted it or not. There were several things that my grandmother, or many, many things my grandmother told me over the years. Some of them have stayed in my mind. My great-grandmother, for instance, told me, she said, Scotty, I'd be walking by, and she'd grab me right there by the pants. He'd say, Scotty, look at me. Said, yes, Grandma. Scotty, you marry a girl who's pretty and hardworking. Well, check. That's good advice, young man. All right? That's good advice coming from, your, from previous generations. That works. I took that advice. There was other advice that was less difficult to take. Now, my grandmother, when she traveled, they would come down for a month or two months, and she would have all of her stuff with her. And as time went by, the years went by, she'd come down. Each year, her health was declined a little bit. And she'd come down, she'd bring all of her medicines with her. And, of course, she needed enough for the time that she was there. Now, back in the day, when they gave you a liquid prescription, they would put it in a brown glass bottle or a clear glass bottle, and they would slap a label on there, and that's what she got. 
Later, they became brown plastic bottles or clear plastic bottles. But back in the day, some of you might remember in the family uh, uh, bathroom cabinet, there's these bottles from six years ago that have that much stuff in them. And, but my great-grandmother, she would come down with her prescription. I never knew that those glass and plastic bottles came in the two-liter size. She would bring something down that she called green death because my grandmother would get coughing fits and she would, uh, she'd, she'd get into them, you know, she'd cough and nothing to it and then she'd cough and cough and sometimes that would turn into a coughing fit where she's coughing and coughing and coughing. Two minutes, three minutes, four minutes. We're kind of going, oh, grandma, because we knew that she's going to break out the green death eventually and she hated that stuff and who knows what was in it? I have an inkling. I think I know some of the ingredients, and they were, they're, <laughs> they're not good ingredients. But anyway, when she broke down, when she finally had to get into the green death, she'd reach in there, and with a shaking hand, she'd undo that cap, and then she'd, she'd pick up the glass with a shaking hand. We kids were always waiting for her to spill a drop. And somehow, she didn't. And she'd, she'd, that glass, she'd fill it up with that green stuff. And she'd be coughing and coughing and coughing, and then finally she drinks the whole glass, and she goes, <gasps> and that's when the advice comes. And she'd say, Scotty, don't ever get old, it's the pits. Well, some advice you can take and some you can't. I mean, Grandma, I'd love to, especially looking at the youth here and the energy you have. And man, you guys don't know how fortunate you are, but anyway. I would love to take that advice, but I, the beard is gray, you know, and, and uh, I'll be a grandfather in May, and this is, this is how it works, you know, this is, this is life on this earth. My grandmother gave me one other piece of advice that sticks in my mind. I would be walking innocently by, minding my own business, she'd grab me by the pants, and that's not enough, then she reaches up and she grabs me by the shirt and she says, come here! She says, Scotty! Watch for Jesus, because we will see him come. My grandmother did not grow up an Adventist. She came up hard when we would get her really upset, and we four young kids could. She would turn the air blue, and then she'd cry and apologize. But she came up hard. She emigrated from Norway to the United States when she was 13 years old. And she was married and pregnant. I'm not sure which came first, but she was married and pregnant at 16. Um, she converted to Adventism in her late 20s after going to a prophecy seminar. And my grandmother, who was then a girl, converted with her. And they were lifelong Adventists married to lifelong non-Adventists. Anyway, my grandmother maintained, my great-grandmother maintained her fervor. She wanted to see Jesus come, and she believed that she would live to see Jesus come with her own eyes before she died. She believed with a little less intensity, but she believed what the founders of the church believed, that Jesus was coming within their lifetime, that they would see Jesus come and they had to use their time, and they had to use their money, and they had to use their reputation and their influence appropriately because Jesus was coming within their lifetimes. Ultimately, my grandmother did not see, live to see Jesus come. She went to sleep, 
at the age of 99 and a half. Um, my grandmother was a good Seventh-day Adventist woman, but she was an altogether drier personality than my great-grandmother, and maybe that's good. You know, we only need so many of those. Um, she believed that she would see Jesus come within her lifetime. She was wrong. She passed away not too many years ago at the age of 93. My father is 77, and he believes that he will see Jesus come in his lifetime, but he thinks Jesus really needs to hurry up because the men in the family live nowhere near as long as the women in the family, and that's just how it works. I believe that I will see Jesus come in my lifetime. And I am not looking at the same indicators as my great-grandmother and my grandmother and my father. I believe, like the founders of the church, that I will see Jesus come and that there are certain priorities for how I use my time, how I use my resources, how I use my influence, that I urgently need to be following. But again, I'm not looking at the same thing my great-grandmother and grandmother and father looked at. My great-grandmother saw World War I, World War II, Korea, the whole nine yards, up to the first Kuwait-Iraq war. Um, passed away in 1997. Uh, she saw a lot. She saw the world grow progressively more wicked. She saw the fulfillment of prophecy in a world that was getting more wicked. She said, time cannot go on so long. Um, my grandmother saw, well, she certainly saw World War II uh, and everything past that. And she was looking at these same signs and she, was, she had the same rationale. The world is getting more wicked. God will not wait forever. Christ is coming soon. It's going to happen. With each generation, no disrespect to my father though, but with each generation, the fervor with which this is believed has diminished progressively. So that if you go back to the founders of the church who were on fire, some of whom were there for the great disappointment, you know, who, who, not all of them, there were Laodicean Adventists back in the day too, I don't want to romance this, but, but by and large, the people that founded the church, it wasn't a lifestyle, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't cultural Adventism, it was Jesus is coming. And it meant something. That phrase, Jesus is coming, has lost its punch, lost its power. What I'm looking at is what I'm talking about in every other session of this series. And if you haven't been to the other sessions, and it's likely that you haven't, some have, gluttons for punishment, I think. Um, but if you haven't been to the other sessions, they are available on, on uh, Audioverse. And my book is available in the ballroom that uh, the, uh, the Florida Adventist Book Center has like 150. I don't know, very opt an act of optimism uh, as far as I'm concerned, but they brought a bunch of my books, um, which I do not profit from. The author's royalties go to the building fund of my home church, so I can push them with a clear conscience. But what I'm looking at 
And what I've talked about in each of these seminars is the effect of sin on our physical earth. The actual systems that God created to sustain life on this planet. The actual decay in the earth that our society and our economy is built on four square. Our oceanic system, which is crashing and burning, uh, which will be completely, uh, scientists are calling it the, the Mycocene era, the age of slime. Our oceans are dying rapidly and will be completely fished out within the next 20 years. One billion people rely on the oceans for food and they don't know what they're gonna do because the land-based food is under enormous pressure and our, our, our food production curve, or our, our, uh, yeah, our food production curve has, is beginning to flatten off and looks like it will decline while our population begins to grow. And if you've been here for the other seminars, or if you go to my book, or if you go back to, uh, or there's a television series coming on 3ABN, uh, LLBN this spring, and a DVD coming out from Review and Herald. If you go to any of those sources, you can take a look at um, what I talk about in terms of our global food production and how increases in food prices, which have rocked the developing world in the last five years, while North America has barely even taken notice, that these food prices have cost, uh, caused uh, conflict after conflict after conflict some in the Middle East, some in Africa, uh, some in Asia, but a changing earth as a result of sin is putting pressure on, on human society, which is resulting in conflict, which is resulting in human migration, which is 50 million people last year just from being forced to move because of water shortages, which is resulting in significant increases in disease, which is resulting in significant increases in hunger, moving towards famine. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, six through eight. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. All of these, including the significant increase in earthquakes that we're seeing. This is Christ telling us what will happen in the end times. And as I look at the effect of sin on our actual planet and how that is pressuring society and how that is resulting in billions, with a B, billions of people who are resource poor, people who make uh, one to two dollars a day, and that's all they have, and the suffering that they're going on, they're going under, when I look at the increases in disease, when I look at the increases in uh, hunger, when I look at the dramatic increases in, in conflict, I go back to this verse. Knowing that the line that we're on, we're going to see an exponential increase in all of these, that we're just beginning to see the beginning of what Christ said was coming. 
Um, Christ was emphatic in his instructions for this day. My parents watched what they read in their Bibles. I'm watching everything they watched, but I'm also watching information and data that we did not have until this current age. Christ would not tell us to watch without giving us something to watch. But when we have that something to watch, it is incumbent upon us to act. Let's take a look at what Christ said. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark. And I'm going to challenge you, Mark 13. I'm going to challenge you, so you should be alert, to determine if I have read this correctly. Now, I'm reading from the New King, New King James Version, and it might not be fair because your version might not be exactly the same, but I'm reading from New King James. So if you have a New King James Version, hold my feet to the fire and tell me if I read this correctly. I also want you to count with me the number of times that Christ tells us to watch. Okay? So Mark 13, verse 32. In this verse, in this passage of scripture, Christ is speaking to his disciples privately. I'll give you more context later. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch. That's once, right? Take heed, watch and pray, both, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, that's three. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping, and what I say to you, I say to all, watch. That's four. You know this is a trap, so be careful. Did I read it correctly? You almost nodded. <laughs> well, you know it's a trap. You're smart people. No, I didn't. No, I'm going to read that last verse, verse 37. I'm going to read it correctly. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch! In the New King James Version, translated by a team of excellent translators, they, of course, are working with original manuscripts. Those manuscripts have no verse and chapter numbers. And they have, those were established a long time ago, though. They don't change those. They have no punctuation. And they have to work, they have to look at the original transcripts and find out how to convey the meaning to us. In the New King James Version, this team of translators put an exclamation point after watch. Now, the same team of translators mostly worked on the other Gospels. And it's a very interesting thing. It's a very illuminating thing to take a New King James Version on some afternoon, some Sabbath afternoon, try, you know, give up your nap after, after potluck and, and, and look at the scripture. And probably you guys never take naps on Sabbath afternoon. Probably talking about a different group of people. But anyway, look at the Gospels. It doesn't take long to scan through them and find exclamation points. Where did these translators put exclamation points? More to the point, 
where did Christ speak directly to his disciples and therefore directly to us and give them instructions and it's followed by an exclamation point? You will find exclamation points in the Gospels when Christ is speaking in third person. He's telling a parable. He's speaking as one of the characters. I found the coin! And they put an exclamation point in. It belongs there, you know? You will also find in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 23, you will find exclamation points. Oh, you sepulchers! Oh, you brood of vipers! He's speaking to the scribes and Pharisees in astonishingly harsh and blunt tones, appropriately harsh and blunt tones. And there, absolutely, a exclamation point belongs there. But where else, I challenge you, did he speak to us directly with an exclamation point? We need to take that seriously. Go and look. But here we have it here. We are told repeatedly and emphatically to watch. Why? I'm asking. So we're not sleeping? Good answer. Are there others? Why should we watch? Sorry? It's a good idea. There are benefits to it. Looking for something a little more specific, but that's okay. Again? Okay, good. So we're not taken by surprise, absolutely. Because if we're not watching, it will be as it was in the days of Noah. Good, yes. So that we know what we're looking for. Can I rephrase it? Is that okay? Okay, yes. So we won't... Yes. So we are not deceived. These are all excellent answers, every one of them. Thank you. I'm going to give you another perspective. We are supposed to watch because it changes us. We will watch something, and we will be drawn towards that which we watch. If we watch the world, we will be drawn to the world. And we will go farther and farther into the world. And as we do, our perspective on everything will change until we're over here. And from here, evolution makes sense. Only an idiot would deny this, this spectacular collection of data that we have. Don't you know we evolved from monkeys? And how can you possibly be spending your time in church when you should be out having fun? Instead, you're just following a bunch of rules and you're with a bunch of just, just uncomfortable and tight-collared old people. And come on, what's wrong with you? You're worshiping a fable. And the, book, the Bible is just a bunch of stories. What's wrong with you? And that makes sense to them from here and from the way they look at the world. But if we watch Christ, watch for Christ, and study the scriptures, we will be drawn. Our perspective will, will change, and we will see things that other people don't see. Not because they aren't there, but we'll see them because we're watching for them. Our perception of reality will change.
because we're not being deceived. And we will go farther and farther and farther toward Christ until we're over here. My heart is breaking for these people who are trading in heaven for a handful of fool's gold. Why can't these people see that they are only harming themselves and others and they're chasing foolishness? Why can't they see the love of God? And that makes sense from right here. And giving our resources to the Lord and pushing his work on and being stepping into his yoke and pulling until we drop makes sense from here. And we cannot bridge the gap between here and there. Only the cross will bridge that gap. Only by lifting Christ up will people be drawn to him. That's it. Those positions are so far apart, only Christ can bring them together. Christ had more to say. Let's go back to Matthew 24. Now, if you take a look at Matthew 24, what's going on is astonishing. Christ will soon be crucified. He will soon be taken from his disciples. He is having to try and put the last things into the minds of his disciples, put the things that are most urgent to him into the minds of his disciples. He is in an incredible situation, and Satan has him hemmed in, and he is under stress that we can't even begin to comprehend. And he makes some interesting statements at the beginning of chapter 24. And Jesus said to them in verse 2, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Well, that was a huge thing. The temple itself being destroyed, that was a big deal to disciples who thought he would have an earthly kingdom. And they approached him privately. And they said, tell us what the end will be like. Tell us these things. And, oh my, did Christ tell them. Chapter 24 of Matthew is an astonishing verse, astonishing chapter. He told them so much, starting at verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and see that you are... See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. In my sixth session, I will unpack verses 6 through 8 extensively, if you want to either come or listen to it on audio verse. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. He's saying to them, guys, look for these things. This is how it starts. And then it gets worse. He goes on to tell them that they will be delivered to tribulation. Many will be killed. He goes on to tell them that there will be false gospels and lawlessness and love will go cold. And, the, and this message will be preached to all the world. He is, he is quickly covering thousands of years of human history and thousands of years of the history of the gospels. 
He who endures to the end will be, shall be saved, in verse 13. Now, with any, uh, um, with many, sorry, prophecies, they ha- you have a dual prophecy, one that is fulfilled in the short term and one that is fulfilled in the long term. We see that in chapter 24 because Christ talks about long term while he also talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, which comes. And he's talking to us. Uh, when we see the abomination of desolation, get out. He's also talking to them, those who get out of Jerusalem uh, when it's under siege in that brief period when the army pulls back. They'll get out. So here we go. Uh, and you, by the way, you'll notice there's a number of exclamation points uh, in these passages. And we keep going through chapter 24, and he keeps telling them what's coming, even if they did not understand it at that time. And then we get down to eventually verse 42. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour... Does that sound familiar? Yes. Matthew 24 and Mark 13 are parallel, parallel chapters. So is Luke 21. Three of the gospel writers recorded the same thing in different ways with different points of emphasis. And only by reading all three chapters do you get the full impact of it. But here is the message again. Watch, watch, watch. Recorded here with less emphasis than we get in Mark, but recorded here. And then we get to the end of chapter 25, uh, chapter 24. And chapter 25 starts. What happened between chapter 24 and chapter 25? You all know chapter 25. You all recognize chapter 25. But what happened between chapter 24 and chapter 25? Does anybody know? It's a good thing you don't know, because all that happened was that Christ took a breath. We didn't change scene. We didn't change time. We didn't change theme. We didn't change the discussion. Here is where they decided a long time ago that they were going to, that's, that's enough. Let's put in another chapter. But nothing else has changed, and Christ proceeds with his message, the message he was giving to his disciples, the message he's giving to you and me for this time right now. Bear with me while I read a bit out of chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took uh, their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Uh, Who are the virgins? That's the church, right? Hmm, rain. And who is the bridegroom? Christ. Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. So the church is split. And And those who were foolish took their lamps but took no oil with them. What is the oil? That's the Holy Spirit, absolutely. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, has the bridegroom been delayed? Is this prophecy? Absolutely. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept, just like your church today. This generation has more information. This generation is able to chart and graph the fulfillment of prophecy full stop. We can see it happening in front of us, and this generation is asleep as Christ said we would be. To have more information than anyone else, to have more responsibility than anyone else, and to be sleeping is astonishing. 
But we wake up, and at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell. Now there's a thousand sermons in this passage, and I hope you will bear with me as I don't give them, but instead drive toward the point I'm trying to make. Go to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Verse 13, watch therefore. Christ spent an, a, a chapter and a half trying to make one point and in the process giving us a wealth of prophecy and information. But it is all contained within the context that we are supposed to watch. We are supposed to watch, exclamation point, full stop. Because it changes us. Because we become fit for his service. Or we gradually become fit for his service. Because it keeps us from being deceived. Because it prepares us to be ready. Because it prepares us to point out the signs to others who aren't watching. Christ was so emphatic on this point. Christ does not give us the charge to watch and then give us nothing to watch. In this generation, and I know I've said it before, but bear with me while I say it one more time, we can chart and graph the fulfillment of prophecy and in my other sessions, which I hope you listen to on Audioverse uh, or obtain in some other way, uh, I outline exactly how that's happening, exactly what's going on in the world, how we can see it now, like no other generation before us. We have an astonishing responsibility. Now, I do believe that Christ will come in my lifetime. I'm 53, statistically speaking, I've got 30 years left. Whether I have it, whether I get that or not, I don't know. Do I believe that Christ will come in the next 30 years? Yes. As my father, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, the founders of the church. And here's the thing, I could be wrong like all of them. But if I'm watching and working and drawing close to Christ, it doesn't matter. I only win. I don't lose. And as I draw closer to Christ, I give more of my resources. I'm willing to surrender my reputation. Oh, I don't want to witness to them. That'd be embarrassing. Invite them to church. Come on, they're going to think I'm some kind of freak. It doesn't matter being thought of as a freak anymore when you get closer and closer to Christ. It's like, of course I want to introduce these people to Christ. I'm doing them the biggest favor of their lives. So that's my message. And I'm giving it to you in something of a vacuum because you're not getting the two hours of speaking that went before it or the two hours of speaking that come after. But there's a lot more if you choose to access that information. Whether you choose to or not, here's my message. Watch and be changed 
because Jesus really is coming, and he really is coming soon. I neglected to start with prayer. Will you allow me to finish with prayer? Dear Father in heaven, strengthen us, Lord. Sharpen our vision, sharpen our minds. Help us, Lord, to see the signs of your coming. Fill us, Lord, with an appropriate sense of urgency. Accept our meager sacrifice, Lord, and multiply it astonishingly that you may be glorified and your kingdom may be swelled. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.